and today we're talking about Jesus, the suffering servant king. Okay, but, but what, I, what I want to do is, okay, um, when I used to teach junior church back in the day, okay, I would um, sometimes tell the kids, okay, hey, we're going to put our imagination hats on, okay? And they would literally um, get the hats, okay? And uh, not, not real hats, okay? If they're imagination hats, they have to be imaginary, right? Okay? So if you want to, you can join me by, we're going to put our hat on, we're going to twist it up a little bit, we're going to go back about 2,000 years, okay, to first century, first century Jerusalem. Now, we did this, okay, when we were going through uh, Advent. We journeyed back to say, what would it be like to be a first century Jew waiting for the Messiah, waiting for the long anointed uh, uh, Savior to come? But this is a similar time period, but it's about 30-ish years later, right? And you are a first century Jew, and you're in Jerusalem. And you're in Jerusalem, not because you live there, but you're in Jerusalem because you have completed this pilgrimage from your hometown, journeying all the way to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Now, if you were living in that time, uh, you wouldn't need uh, the background of the Passover because this is your history. You've lived in, okay? But that's, that's not us. You see, 1,500-ish years before, God had raised up a man named Moses to rescue the Jews, Israelites, out of slavery from Egypt. And so the Passover was the time that, the, that there was a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover where they would remember that God, through Moses, showed Pharaoh who was really in control. Pharaoh was not God. God was God. And through the course of 10 plagues, God showed, you are not in control, I am in control, let my people go. And Pharaoh continued to harden his heart, continued to harden his heart, continued to harden his heart. And in the midst of it, it got to this place where God's like, fine, your heart is hardening, and I'm going to support you in that. And your heart is going to be more hard and more hard until finally there was one last plague where God said this to Moses. He said, tonight, the angel of the Lord, the angel of death is going to pass through the entire land of Egypt. And the firstborn child, the firstborn son of every family will die tonight. Unless you take the blood of the Passover lamb. And he went over the whole thing that they were supposed to take a lamb about a year old and they had to choose it on a certain day of the month and it actually lived with them in the house for like a week or so like that. And then they would take that lamb and they would slaughter that lamb and they would take the blood and they would put it on the door posts of, their, of the door frame of their house. And that when the angel of the Lord saw that blood over the doorway, the wrath of God, the judgment of God, the angel of death would pass over them. That's why it's called the Passover, because God's wrath was passed over those who deserved it right, rightfully because of the blood of the Lamb. And so every year there'd be this pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, to remember that the blood of the Lamb saved them on that day. And it says that, that there was not one house in all of Egypt, in the Egyptian households, that did not lose somebody that night. But in the land of the Israelites, in the land of the Hebrews, as they were called then, that Everybody was safe because they had put the blood of the lamb over the doorposts of their house. And so you are in Jerusalem to celebrate this. And you're living in a time of oppression. For the last 500 or so years, you have been living underneath different governments, different kingdoms. Your people had been exiled into Babylon, and when you had come back, you were still living under the control of the Persians, and then the Greeks, and now the Romans who you were under their thumb. And there was a short period of time, about 80 years or so, where you had thrown off the yoke of the nations and you had this, this kind of freedom, your own nation. But that, that, that was a long past. 
And there is this degree of autonomy that the Romans have given you for self-government, but it, but it didn't come without a price. There's compromises from the religious leaders. Compromising your, your Jewish faith for political power and influence. And you're still waiting for that Messiah to come. And so you've come to Jerusalem with thousands and thousands and thousands of other people. Jerusalem is normally hustling and bustling. It's a big city, but now it's filled to overflowing. And you're there getting ready to celebrate the Passover. And in the midst of this, you hear this commotion. What, something's going on. What, what is this? There's people waving these palm branches. And there's shouts of Hosanna. And it says the whole city is confused. What's going on? Who is this? And they say it's Jesus of Nazareth, the prophet. And maybe you've heard of this man. Maybe you've heard of how he spent the last three years as this itinerant teacher, this, this rabbi with his ragtag group of disciples. Not like, he didn't teach like the Pharisees. He didn't wear these robes and these tassels and all this stuff to look all so cool. He didn't teach the same way the scribes did. He taught with authority. Maybe you've heard the stories. Maybe you even had seen him, had heard him teach. Maybe you'd seen him heal somebody. You've seen his miracles. You've heard of him. And he is coming into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. And people are waving branches and they're putting coats down and they're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. And if you are a good Jew who has studied uh, the scriptures, then there's probably this verse going off in your mind. Zechariah 9.9. From the Old Testament, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of the donkey. And so maybe bells and whistles are going off in your head because here's Jesus of Nazareth that you've heard stories of. He's riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. And you're thinking Zechariah 9.9. And then this is what people are saying about him, okay? These are verses from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is what the crowd behind him is shouting. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And from John, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. I believe that when Jesus is riding into Jerusalem, there's no mistaking what he's declaring. There's no mistaking. You see, throughout his ministry, there's been different times where people understood who he was and he's like, don't tell him about it. And we'll get to that a little bit later. But here he's riding into Jerusalem on the donkey. Hosanna shouts. I mean, just look at this. Hosanna means save us. Thank you, God. You've saved us. There's kingship language. There's David language. The people there got it. They understood what Jesus was declaring. I'm the Messiah. I'm the coming king. The religious leaders understood it. Because in the book of Luke, I believe, they tell Jesus, Jesus, rebuke your disciples. They shouldn't be saying this stuff. This obviously isn't true about you. And do you realize, okay, I'm I'm adding these other things. They just said rebuke your disciples, okay? Between the lines, they can't say this stuff. Do you know what the Romans are going to do to us if we proclaim that we have a king? Are you crazy? You can't be doing this. You need to rebuke your disciples. And Jesus says, I tell you, if they're silent, the very rocks are going to cry out. You see, there's no mistaking. It was finally time. If you read through the Gospels, you see different times Jesus says, it's not time yet. It's not my time. It wasn't his time. It's time. And he goes out 
Zechariah 9, 9, bells and whistles are going off. The religious leaders know about it. Rebuke your disciples. They shouldn't say this. No, no, no. If they're silent, the very rocks will cry out. And this is when the plot to kill Jesus ramps up. But the religious leaders say, not during the festival, because the crowd got it too. And they were scared of the crowd. But here's the thing. They, they got it. They understood. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the king, but they missed it. Because they didn't understand that this king, he's gonna, yes, he's going to return. He's going to set up his kingdom. There's, there's going to be a forever kingdom with God where it says the dwelling of God will again be with humanity. What a blessed, blessed eternity, right? But you see, this king of kings was first going to have to be a suffering servant, and they missed it. And in about 120 hours, the shouts of Hosanna in the city are going to change the shouts of crucify him, take him away. The religious leader is telling Pilate, we have no king but Caesar. Are you kidding me? They actually said that they did. The one that there's only one God and Caesar says he's a God, you worship him. And the religious leaders say, we have no king but Caesar, take him away. Crucify him. How, how, what happened? How did they get there? Well, what I want to do is go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at the time that the disciples got it. But it's kind of the same as the crowd. They got it. He's the Messiah, but they didn't quite fully understand it. Now, uh, this passage, you can find a passage like this in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Okay, those three Gospels, there's four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic Gospels, okay? And uh, optic, okay, if, you've ever, if you're like me and your eyesight is like this, you know what optic means, okay? It's talking about eyes or vision. And sin, sin that means like with. So with the same vision, these, these three Gospels, a lot of their stories overlap, okay? You'll often find um, something in this, in Matthew, that will be a similar one in, in Mark and Luke, okay? John is focusing on Jesus' ministry in and around Jerusalem, and I believe Dr. Clark is going to be digging into that this summer for Sunday school, okay? But in the Synoptic Gospels, there is a time midway through each of Matthew, Mark, and Luke where, where it t- that tells a story. And this is a story. Verse... 13 of Matthew chapter 16. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Let's, let's pause here real quick. <clears throat> it's interesting about this place that Jesus was taking them to to ask this question. You see, Caesarea Philippi was a pagan place. There was foreign gods everywhere. There was literally a place there that was literally called the gates of hell or the gates of Hades. Okay, this was a place that had been rebuilt uh, by Philip, who was the ruler uh, at that time, and he built it to dedicate it to Caesar. That's why it's called Caesarea Philippi. And so it's in this place where foreign gods are worshipped everywhere, okay, where there is a place that is literally called the Gate of Hades. Jesus says, okay, we're going to this place, or here we've arrived. Who do people say the Son of Man is? That was what he would call himself, the Son of Man. They replied, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, Still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So he said, who do people say that I am? And they're like, you know what? Their answers show that people knew there was something different about Jesus. Maybe this is John the Baptist resurrected from the dead. Or maybe it's like Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets that come back. This, this was something unique, something special. And then Jesus like stops that and like I just see him like looking right at them. Okay, who do you say that I am? What about you? 
Who do you say that I am? And Peter, Peter sometimes really gets it right. And sometimes he really gets it wrong. And sometimes that happens within minutes of each other. Okay? Simon Peter, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. You're the Messiah. You're the long-awaited one. That's what it means. Christ is is the Greek word for the Hebrew Messiah, which means anointed one. You're the one that was coming. And Jesus is like, yes, you get it. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For this was not revealed to you by man, but but by my Father in heaven. And then he says, and I tell you that you are Peter, which means rock or pebble. And on this rock, okay, it's two different words. You, Peter, are this pebble, and on this cliff I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Just a a little aside, okay? He's not talking about building it on Peter, who's the rock. Peter is the pebble and the cliff of you're the Christ, you're the Messiah. That's what the church is built on, that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is the Messiah. And yes, Peter's going to have great influence and leadership in the early church. But Jesus is saying this cliff, that I am the Christ, this foundation, that's what the church is going to be built on. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Oh, and by the way, they're standing at the place where the gates of Hades literally is. Even in this darkest pagan place, that won't be able to overcome it. Peter got it. He's the Messiah. But he, he didn't quite get it. Because here, this is the very next verse. Peter says, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. What if you bind on earth will be bound in heaven? What if you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven? And then he warns them. Warns his disciples, do not tell anyone <laughs> that I'm the Christ. And I don't know about you, but like, sometimes we can read scripture so much that we're just like, yeah, okay, that makes sense. Like, I've read this so many times. But if it was the first time you read it, yeah, I'm the Messiah. You got it. Don't tell anybody. And you're like, why? Like, didn't you come to save the world? You're the Messiah. Shouldn't we tell everybody? Why did he warn them not to tell them? Because they got it, but they didn't get it. Because the, right, the next thing that he says is, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples, he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. So don't tell anybody because it's not time yet because here's what it means to be the Messiah. I'm going to suffer and die. I'm going to be killed. And then he tells them the end of the story, right? What's the last thing he says? On the third day, I'm going to raise to life. But they, they, they missed that part. They just missed it. And so Peter says this. Remember bold, brash Peter? You're the Messiah. You're the Christ. And then this is what he does. Ready? Look at this. Peter takes Jesus aside. Can you imagine this? Like, just imagine. Don't become so familiar with this story that you, it doesn't, like, what? What did Peter just do? He takes him aside and he rebukes the Son of God. <laughs> okay? Can you imagine that? Never, Lord. This shall never happen to you. And Jesus turns to him and says, Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me, and you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. He went from rock to stumbling block. Okay? Get behind me, Satan. Now, now why that response? You see, what Peter is saying here matches up with one of the temptations that, that Satan tempted Jesus with in the wilderness. You don't have to suffer. I, I'm, in, I, I'm, the ki- I'm the king of the rulers of the air. I have all the power of these kingdoms. Bow down to me. You can have it. You don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to suffer to be the king. I'll give you this power and authority I have here. That's what Peter was saying, basically. No, 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 that's not going to happen. Get behind me, Satan. 
this is what it means to be the Messiah. The conquering king is going to be the suffering servant first. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be of a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels. And then he'll reward each person according to what he's done. I tell you the truth, some of you who are standing here will not taste death before the, they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So Peter gets it. You're the Christ. You're the Messiah. And Jesus is like, yeah. God showed you that, not man. It's not time yet. Don't tell anybody. Because what does it mean to be the Messiah? It means I'm going to suffer and die and raise to life. And Peter's like, no way. That ain't happening. Get behind me, Satan. And in fact, if you want to follow me, you're going to have to walk the same walk I walked. You're going to have to take up your cross, and you're going to have to carry it all the way. And this is coming from somebody that, like, he's literally going to take up a cross and carry it to Golgotha and die. And just about every one of those 12 disciples is going to die a martyr's death. Now, this doesn't just mean you're going to have to be a, a martyr, literal martyr, but you're going to need to walk out the faith that you have to be a martyr in the sense of being a witness to the world. So it's like the disciples got it, but they didn't fully get it. And so there are a couple other passages, two more times in the Synoptic Gospels, that, that Jesus repeats this, this, this is what it means to be the Messiah. Okay, this one is from Mark chapter 9, verse 30 through 32, okay? Uh, we, we read the first passage from Matthew, and I put there in, in parentheses where you can find the parallel passages in the other Gospels, okay? Um, and then we're going to look at one from Mark and Luke. These are three different stories, okay? There are three different times repeated where Jesus is saying, this is what it means that I am the Messiah. Mark chapter 9. They left the place, and they passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. Again, the Son of Man is delivered over, betrayed, killed, and rise to life, but they didn't understand it. In Luke it says the meaning was hidden from them. Again, if we go over to the book of Luke, Chapter 18, this is a third and final time in the synoptics that Jesus is going to show them this is what it means for me to be the Messiah. Luke 18, verse 31. Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, we're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. Okay, let's keep that in our mind. Everything written about me is going to be fulfilled. He's talking about Old Testament prophecy. He will be handed over to the Gentiles, they'll mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. The disciples, again, did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. Okay, it's like in these times, the disciples didn't get it. They felt grieved about it. I mean, the first time, Peter's like, Jesus, this will never happen to you. But the other times, they didn't understand it, but they didn't ask him about it. It's like, I don't know what he means, but I don't really like this, and it makes me kind of feel scared and afraid, but I don't want to ask him about it. So they stayed kind of in the dark. They, 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 they got it. He's the Messiah, but they didn't get it fully. Because you see, the, Jesus is coming again. He's going to set up his kingdom. He's going to be that conquering king, the lion of the tribe of Judah. But if you read in Revelation, it says, Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah, and it's a lamb that has been slain that comes out. One and the same. 
And if you look throughout the book of Acts, the message Peter preaches, the message Paul preaches is this. The Messiah had to suffer and die according to the scriptures. And because of that, that's why Jesus is the Messiah. The Messiah had to suffer and die. Yes, he's coming again to set up his kingdom. He had to suffer and die. And Jesus is the Messiah, according to the scriptures. Now, where did they get that from? There's many passages in the Old Testament we could look at. But what we're going to do, go ahead and turn to Isaiah chapter 52. And we're going to walk through some of this. The main passage from the Old Testament that talks about this suffering servant. We're going to walk through, uh, this is kind of like a, a prophetic song, okay? Um, there are five stanzas of three verses, and we're going to unpack each of the stanzas because you see this here, this is one of the main Old Testament foundations that point forward to what Jesus was saying. Everything written about the Son of Man is going to have to be fulfilled. They got it, but they didn't quite fully get it. If we look in the book of Isaiah, there's four different passages, Isaiah 42, 49, 50, and then 52 and 53, where it talks about there's these songs about the servants, okay? And as we look at these, sometimes it seems like it's talking about all of Israel as a servant, but as we go through it, we see that it's crystallized in a particular Israelite who will not only influence the nations of the world, but it's going to restore Israel to its own relationship with God. And again, there's, there's five stanzas here. Of three verses. And as we study through this, the main part up here, the first line or so of the stanzas in bold and orange, because this is going to summarize the message of this stanza. So, what we're going to do over the next 15 or so minutes, we're going to walk through Isaiah, the, the last three verses of Isaiah 52, and go through Isaiah 53. And what is the Old Testament foundation for the Son of Man, the Messiah, having to be the suffering servant? So, let's dig into it just a little bit. <clears throat> Isaiah 52:13 See my servant will act wisely he will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted just as there were many who were appalled at him his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond human likeness so he will sprinkle many nations kings will shut their mouths because of him for what they were not told they will see and what they have not heard they will understand so this whole, this stanza here is about the servant is acting wisely. It's the whole summary of everything we're going to read through the next chapter of Isaiah 53. The idea that this servant, Jesus, acting wisely means he's walking in the will of God. He's walking in obedience to God. So we see right from the very beginning that everything that's going to be described in this suffering servant song is coming because this man, Jesus, is walking in God's will. He's walking in obedience, okay? Uh, we see that the suffering that's going to happen is going to lead to glory. It's setting that up for us. And, and it's interesting. There's some things in here. It talks about his appearance. It says that his form was marred beyond human likeness. When Jesus is on the cross, he's been whipped. He's been beaten. It's almost like he doesn't even look a human anymore. And then it says this. He will sprinkle many nations. And I remember studying that. Like, what, is, what does that mean? That word for sprinkle can have two kind of meanings. The first meaning, okay, it has uh, sacrificial overtones because this would literally be what it means is when you killed the lamb, okay, the blood sprinkles out, spurts out, okay? 
And so there is this sacrificial overtones that this is the Lamb of God slain for the world, but it also can mean surprise. He'll surprise many nations. And, and why is that? Okay, Not to be graphic, but if you were to cut a lamb's throat, it spurts out. Okay, You can ask Dale all about that, right, Dale? <laughs> he'll, he'll tell you much more than I will. Okay, So it's like this, this thing that's a surprise. We didn't think this was going to happen, uh, but it surprises, but it's this thing that is going to be a sacrifice. Uh, there, it's, it's starting out that this is God's will, the servant's walking on it, and it's bringing up sacrifice from the very beginning. Let's continue on here. Verse 1 of chapter 53. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot. Like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. This message that's going to be proclaimed is one that was not readily accepted. It wasn't one that was anticipated. It's talking about to whom has the arm of the Lord or the power of the Lord been revealed. And then it's giving some of his background. Like he grew up like this tender shoot. He didn't have beauty. He didn't have something that would attract us to him. Jesus of Nazareth. He grew up in Nazareth of what it said. What good comes out of Nazareth? So in his formative years, there's nothing about him that's like, oh, this, yeah, this is the next big thing. This is what it is. And then it says he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows familiar with suffering you see jesus understands what it what it's like to sorrow when we go through hard times when we struggle through hard things in life god is not aloof god doesn't have to enter into suffering he's god he created everything right but he chose to enter into suffering he understands what it means to suffer to be a man familiar with suffering and when jesus is on the cross he's like a man from whom we hide our face i don't know him i don't know that man i don't want to know him no. Do you know that man? No, I don't. He's despised and rejected. A man that we hide our faces. We esteem him not. He's a man of sorrow. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to, to cover you under my wings like a mother hen with its chicks, but you would not have it. He's a man of sorrow and suffering. Let's continue on. Verse 4. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So this is what it says. His suffering was going to be vicarious, which means it was going to be in the place of someone else. This servant king, this suffering servant who's walking in the perfect will of God is suffering so that he can take our infirmities and he can carry our sorrows. He was, and, and we considered him, we thought, it was, we thought it was because of his own sin. But it wasn't. He's not, he's not suffering for his own punishment. It's this redemptive suffering. It's this restorative suffering that brings grace and peace and salvation. And even though that we have all gone astray... As a whole, and each one of us as well, God has laid on him the brunt of our iniquity. And, you know, if we, if we read that here, it says right here, the, Lord, the last, ver, the last uh, line there, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Okay? In, in the English, it seems like God's laid it on him. But that word for laid is like to meet it. The full brunt of our sin, of our guilt, of our shame was put on Jesus. 
and he bore it all. And the suffering that he goes through is in your place and mine because it's a punishment that brings us peace. By his wounds we are healed. Even though we've gone astray, we don't deserve it. God has put our sin, our iniquity, which means our self-will, our selfishness on Jesus. Continuing on. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a slam to the slaughter. As a sheep before her shearers is silent, he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. The suffering he goes through is going to be marked by oppression and injustice. He's innocent. No violence, no deceit. He doesn't deserve it. We looked at him and we thought, man, this guy must have really done something wrong. But we realized, no, it's in our place. He's innocent. This is oppressive. It's not just. It's not something that he should do. And he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. He was silent. This is different than some of the Psalms that we read. David's going through a hard time. God, why do I have to do this? I don't understand. Kind of spits it all out and goes, but I trust you. Yes, in the garden, is there any other way but not my will and yours? But when Jesus is before the trial, he's silent. The only thing he answers is, are you the Christ? Yes, it says, you say that I am. And you'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with the angels in glory. It was this oppressive thing. He's cut off from the land of the living. Why? For our sins, for our transgressions. You see, he's the lamb of God. Again, there's the sacrificial overtones. He has no descendants. His life is cut off. It seems like it's this fruitless life snuffed out way too early. Yet, it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. Some of your translations may say it pleased the Lord to crush him. It doesn't mean like it made God happy. No, but it was the Lord's will. We come full circle. The suffering servant is walking in obedience to the will of God. The suffering that is coming is going to lead to glory. And as we wrap up this suffering servant song, it was God's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. Why? And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, just as, make them just as if they had never sinned. He will bear their iniquities, their, their sins. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great. He will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death. And was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for transgressors. Again, we come full circle. This is the Lord's will. The suffering is the result of Jesus walking in the perfect will of God. He becomes this guilt offering. And guilt offering in the Old Testament, when you had sinned, it was an offering that you would make in repentance. Sometimes there would be restitution there. You would bring this offering. Well, Jesus Christ is that guilt offering. Paul brings this up in Romans chapter, Romans chapter 3. We're going to read it from the New Living Translation. You see, Paul has just said nobody can be right in God's sight by keeping the law. The law shows us where we mess up. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him, a, made, a way to be made righteous 
apart from the law, without keeping the requirements of the law, as was promised in the writing of Moses and the prophets ago. We are made right with God, or maybe the word is we are justified with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. This is true for everyone who believes, no matter who they are, Jew, Gentile, everyone. For everyone has sinned. We all fall fall short of God's glorious standard. It's like if we all line up over here and we say, who's going to run this way and who's going to be able to jump over the piano from right here? Guess what? None of us are going to make it. We all fall short of God's standard of perfection. Yet, God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. And then it says he did this. Let's get here. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. For God presented Jesus as a sacrifice for sin, a sacrifice of atonement, a sacrifice that covers over a guilt offering, so to speak. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. The sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. For he was looking ahead and included them in what he would do in the present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, for he himself is fair and just, and he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. You see, the suffering servant is about the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Killed in our place for our sins, for our iniquities. And here's what it says. Even though he's been made a guilt offering, he's going to see new life. He's going to see his offspring. No, not his physical offspring, but Christians. The spiritual offspring of Jesus Christ. And because he numbered himself with with the transgressors and the sinners, because he bore our sins, God raised them up to new life. You see, we're going to talk about the resurrection next Sunday. Paul says the blood of Jesus Christ, the death of Jesus Christ forgives you. So if that's true, why did Jesus have to raise from the dead? A couple reasons. Somebody could say, hey, I'm going to die in your place. And then they die. And you're like, did it work? (laughs) Right? He rose from the dead. It showed that his death was, the word is efficacious. It worked. It did what it was supposed to do. He rose from the dead. It showed he really did die in our place because he conquered death. And because he died, he rose again. We will too. That's part of why Jesus rose from the dead. So it comes full circle. The suffering servant walking in the full will of God is going to suffer and die on our behalf. It is a a suffering that's going to lead to victory and salvation. It's vicarious in the place of others and it's efficacious means that it works. It is finished. And this is what Jesus is talking about when he says the Son of Man is going to be handed over and suffer and die. And they didn't get it. We need to get it. If you're here, many of you have put your faith in Jesus. You you, you get it. Jesus died in your place to take away your sin. It's the only way you can be made right with God. So what does all this mean for us today? What's a little bit of application, okay? Number one, I want us to value the death of Jesus. There's a story in the Old Testament that people were bitten by snakes because they had been complaining and rebelling and the venom of the snakes was killing them. And, and God told Moses what to do. Make this bronze serpent, put it up on a pole, and if people get bit by the poison, they just have to look at it. And when they look at it, they're saved. And Jesus said, when the Son of Man is lifted up like that snake, all who look at him and believe. Jesus lifted up on that cross... We look at it and we say, that's punishment in my place. That's enough 
for God to forgive and save me. And that's what it means to put your faith in Jesus, to be persuaded in that. May we value the death of Jesus Christ. And then a question I have for us, do we miss Jesus too? Jesus tells his parable of the sheep and the goats, right? The ones on this side, he says, you, you saw me when I was sick and I was hungry and I needed help and you took care of me. And the goats on the other side, like, you, when you saw me, you, you didn't take care of me. And they're both surprised. When did we see you and help you? When did we see you and not help you? And he says, whatever you did to the least of these brothers of mine, you did to me. In the busyness of life, our life, do we miss Jesus? And finally, Christ is our example in suffering. First Peter says this, To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Then he quotes Isaiah 53. He committed no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in the body on the tree so that we might die to our sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you've been healed. For you all were like sheep going astray, and now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Sometimes I wonder, as Christians in America, if we sometimes buy into the mentality thinking that being a Christian in America means that we have rights and privileges instead of identifying with a suffering servant. When we are ridiculed, when we are thrown at, when we are attacked, do we respond like Jesus did? Or do we think that we have entitlement? And are there blessings to be associated with a suffering servant? You better believe it, right? But Christ is our example of suffering. And are we willing to suffer well to show the world the Savior that we identify with? Because Jesus said, you want to follow me, you pick up your cross and you carry it to the end. Where in my own life, where in our lives does our faith get entangled with our culture? You know, I, I, I don't think and pray enough for my brothers and sisters around the world that are facing like real persecution. And so maybe this is an opportunity for us to open our eyes more to see the, wi- the width and breadth of Christianity around the world. And how can we be praying for our brothers and sisters in Christ that are really suffering? And how can we suffer well? So what does this mean for us? As our worship team comes on up, we'll prepare to, we'll prepare to, to close out. What does this mean for us? Number one, I, I want you to remember Christ's sacrifice. And if you've never received Jesus as your Savior, I challenge you to do that. I challenge you to consider the reality that Jesus died in your place, that you need a Savior. And then let's lean into Holy Week. I've got some scripture passages up there for you to read. You read through Matthew 21, you'll get the triumphal entry today, uh, Monday through Wednesday. It's kind of from Matthew 21 to the end, you'll get the whole story of, of Holy Week. And on Saturday when Jesus is in the tomb, you can read Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22. And then... Here's the thing about the suffering servant. If Jesus is a servant, perhaps we're called to be servants too, right? When he washed their feet, he said, this is the way you show love to one another, by serving one another, just like I show love to you. And then 24 hours later, he's hanging on the cross. So let's ask God to open our eyes that we may see Christ in our midst, that we don't miss him, and that he'll reveal the ministry that he's placed in front of us, to be faithful servants. Let's not leave behind the last sermon series. We've been gifted to serve. How are we living out those gifts?
Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you are the suffering servant king. I thank you that you died in our place. I thank you that that I thank you that Isaiah 53 is there. I thank you that you, the Lion of Judah, are also the Lamb that was slain for me, for us. And so, how about just take some time? Let's t- let's take some time. If you put your faith in Jesus, just take a moment to look up and thank Him for dying for you, for what that death means. It was in your place. It brings restoration and redemption. It puts the worth back in you. Thank Him for that. It's efficacious. That means it worked. It's enough. You don't have to earn it. You can't earn it. It's given. You can receive it. Thank Him for that. And if you're here and you've never put your faith in Jesus, and I encourage you in this time as we are praying and as we sing this last song, open your heart to Him. He wants to save you. Forgive your sin. Give you himself. Will you let him in? Ponder that. If you have questions, talk with me after the service. Jesus, we worship you. We crown you. You're king. You're the ultimate king because you're the suffering king who died and rose again. In your name we pray. Amen.